Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. For him to have just died for no reason, with no answers and no no punishment whatsoever, is just a, it's a really hard pill to swallow. I really do struggle with it. And the other side of it is he's just no one. Like he was no one to the government. He was no one to 
like he's just no one and that really upsets me like because he's not no one he was somebody and he had his whole future in front of him and he was cheated and I was cheated and our family's been cheated and everybody just goes about living their life like nothing's happened. Courtney Pendergast's brother Adrian accepted an exciting job opportunity in South Africa in 1995. Less than a week after he got there, he was found dead in a jail cell. For almost 30 years now, his family has been trying to understand what happened and how he died. But as you're about to discover, the South African legal system has some peculiarities that have made obtaining even the most basic details all but impossible. My dad had been married before my mum and dad got together and they had Adrian and then 11 months later they had twins. And then my mum had been married before too, so her youngest child was in the May, the twins were in the June and Adrian's birthday was in the July. So for one or a couple of months every year, they were all the exact same age. So Aid was um, 13, 14 years older than I am. I didn't see a lot of Aid and the twins growing up, having different mums, obviously. Their mum wasn't necessarily an overly nice human being. (laughs) And dad had custody of them in the school holidays. And that was pretty much it. And then, you know, at eight and nine, they'd hitchhike the two and a half hour drive and rock up on dad's doorstep and dad would put them back in the car and drive them back again. And they spent a lot of time thinking that dad didn't actually want them. And dad's reasoning for doing it was because if he knew he didn't, he would lose any custody that he had of them. Yeah. But every time he dropped them off, she'd be like, see, he's got a new family and he doesn't want anything to do with you. And yeah. So I only saw them a few times a year, but when I did see them, I was super close with them. Can you tell us about Adrian's life sort of leading up to his decision to go to South Africa? Yeah. So he was at Melbourne Uni. So he was living in Collingwood. So went to Melbourne Uni and did an engineering degree. I didn't know a lot of his friends. I've ended up meeting one of his best friends over the years and Mick's given me a bit of information about who he is and the kind of things that they used to get up to. And he's like, don't repeat any of that because they were naughty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, he was just, he was always seemed happy-go-lucky. He drank, just social drinker, party, footy, played a lot of hockey, loved hockey. And yeah, he just kind of partied. And then I'm kind of glad that this happened, but I'd organized a 50th birthday party for my dad and Adrian was able to come, which was really, really good because he stayed the night with us and he and dad sat up, you know, probably all night just talking about childhood and they kind of went through a whole heap of things, which I think was probably really good for Adrian. And that was just before he left. So he was going to come back and spend the following weekend with us before he packed up and left for South Africa, but then got a call and got asked to go over early. So, yeah, we never kind of got to have that last bit of time with him. So I know the last bit of time he had with Dad was probably good and probably really cathartic for him. And I think for Dad, you know, he was just happy for him to to be out and about And because Dad travelled. Dad left the farm when he was in his, you know, after he'd had Alan and Adrian and Marie and um, he ended up over in Europe as a tour bus driver and loved it. Oh, like, cool. Yeah, like best experience of his life. So I think for Aid. 
you know, going out and exploring the world and doing new stuff, dad would have been just happy for him. So what was the job that he went for in South Africa? He was um, a computer engineer and they were working on building bridges over there. Wow. So that's a pretty massive opportunity, I would imagine. Yeah. Where, where was he? Was he in, um, in Johannesburg? or? Yeah, he was in Randburg. I think he'd only been there. Oh, it was less than a week. I reckon it was only probably about three or four days. So back in 95, no mobile phones. <laughs> we had a landline phone and you know if the phone rings in the middle of the night, it's not good because, you know, Mm. we all text each other in the middle of the night and stuff now. That was, you know, you never rang during tea time and you never rang at night. It was just dad and I at that stage because mum had died a couple of years beforehand. And, um, yeah, the phone went off in the middle of the night and you just, I don't know, your gut just sinks. The last phone call we got in the middle of the night was to say mum had died, but mum had been sick. Mm. So you just kind of, I don't know. I never, never thought it'd be Adrian. Just remember getting up in the middle of the night and Dad just saying that Adrian had died and we didn't really have details. Um, They didn't give us too much. And then later on we found out that he had been picked up for drink driving. My understanding is he'd had this car accident, had been picked up, had been taken to a local medical clinic um, to have his blood alcohol taken. If you read the paperwork and you believe what the doctor at the clinic said, he told the doctor that he was schizophrenic. He told the police officer at the accidents, like at the collision site, that he wanted to kill himself. They both laughed at him and deemed it as a joke. And then somewhere like from the medical clinic, he was taken back to the Ramberg police station. All the paperwork and whatever was done and he was put in this rancid cell that had no power was absolutely freezing, completely covered in faecal matter and then just left there. And then apparently what we were told during the one of the first conversations when he first died was they'd been checking on him every hour and then later on we find out, you know, he's put in the cell at about midnight and not checked on again until about seven the next morning. But we knew that he'd gone into this police cell wearing tracksuit pants but was found hanging with a belt. So... That obviously raised a lot of concern. So for us, yeah, like we obviously got the phone call early in the morning and then, you know, really like not long after that, probably just hours later, we had reporters and stuff at the door asking us what happened. We're getting phone calls nonstop. And Dad's like, just leave us alone. We don't know. We can't answer anything. We don't have, like we did, we honestly had no answers, no nothing. And then they were obviously doing their bits and pieces and coming back to us going, you know, this has happened and this has been reported. And, you know, we were finding stuff out through the media. Like, that is not how we should be finding out. Yeah, they were hounding us to the point where, you know, I we lived down at Phillip Island at the time. I went to school in Montagui, so I would catch a bus. And um, Dad was dropping me off at the bus stop and I was sitting in that car until the bus rocked up so that they couldn't talk to me. And then I'd have a teacher at the other end who would meet me at the bus stop and walk me into you know, the schoolyard, and then I'd get home from school and, you know, they'd be banging on the door and stuff, but they, yeah. Oh, my God. I remember them calling and Dad just trying to get them to leave us alone, went, yep, fine, I'll answer some questions, and then they completely flipped everything he said anyway. And I just, it, I don't watch the news, I don't read, I hate the Herald Sun. Um, I just don't believe anything that's reported in the media because I just know what they did to our family and... We didn't know about the belt. They told us about the belt. 
we didn't know the conditions of the cell. Like this is all stuff, like they obviously had people that were finding stuff out. So we were finding, and we were like, what are you talking about? That's not the information we've been given by the police. It's not, you know, and we just had no idea what was factual and what wasn't. And you're like, you just, it messes with your head. You really have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And rocking up at my brother's funeral, I was just like, just, can you just give us an hour? Just give us some time to breathe and grieve and process it. Um, and then all of a sudden the story's over and they just disappear off the face of the earth and they leave you to to try and work it all out. So, I mean, you've, you've victims in this situation. Were they giving you a hard time about the fact that he was drink driving or what was their fascination? Was it the... That he'd been killed. Right. Or that it was negligence. The media, it was giving us information, but they weren't giving us information. They weren't ringing going, hey, we just wanted to let you know that, you know, we found this. It's them feeding us information and then going, okay, how do you feel about it? I don't fucking know because you've just told me. And dad tried to protect me from a lot of it too. Like, so I wasn't necessarily being told stuff. And then you answer the phone because you only have a landline and it turns out it's bloody the Herald Sun or the Age or whatever. And they're ramming shit down your throat and they're going, okay, now we want you to tell us stuff. And you're like, I don't even know what to say to you. You make a good point that we have to remember whenever we see those photos and see that footage on the news, you know. We get so desensitised to it. We just are used to watching other people in their worst moments and their most heartbreaking moments. And we have to remember, oh, God, that, that's fucked. I shouldn't be seeing that. There's yeah. no, I don't need to see that. That's not news. That's not informing me of anything. I don't need someone's funeral to be infiltrated and yeah. photographed. How awful to look across the road and see that, see cameras there. Yeah. And then you don't believe him. It's like you just created this whole story to sell a, to sell papers. And it's like how much of that is even factual? Like there's so much of it where I go, I don't believe. And there's no real passion to follow up and, you know, help you no, there's nothing. find out what happened. Yeah. As soon as that story was run, you know, for those couple of weeks where we were trying to get answers and stuff, we were bombarded. And then nothing ever again. The drink driving, did that surprise your dad, surprise you? Do Not you the drink driving, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, like, as I said, you grew up in a country town, ate, mm. drank, you know, they partied. Yeah. He shouldn't have. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah, you're not condoning it. but No. But I also grew up in the country, so I know that it definitely, and certainly back then it happened. Yeah, especially in the 90s. There, there weren't- yeah, there weren't Ubers to get you to the no. pub and back. <laughs> so people drove to the pub and back yeah. and that's just the way it was. But, I mean, I have no idea what happens when you get arrested for drink driving in South Africa. You know, in Australia, we know that they pull you over and you've got to leave your car locked up and get someone to come and get you. Yeah. So did you ever find out sort of what happened during his arrest? So I've got some paperwork. I'm still in the process of translating it. So I finally, after all these years, managed to get some police reports and that came about because we moved during COVID. When we moved, the neighbours next door were fantastic, but they were from South Africa. And for me, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress probably four years earlier. Um, And one of my triggers is South African accent. So I really, really struggled with that. So the more we got to talking and whatever, it kind of came up in conversation what had happened and Andrew, my neighbour, was a police officer in South Africa. And he's like, okay, and New Ramberg police station and and whatever. So we 
that's kind of, he did the digging for us. He was able to get his sister who was still living in South Africa at the time to, you know, go and try and find the records and get information and stuff for us. So Isn't life amazing? Yeah. Like I just, I think I struggled so much with AIDS, death and no closure and stuff because I could never find a reason in it. Like I could mm. find a reason in my mum dying and I could find our our brother Alan committed suicide um, a few years before Adrian died. And I think, you know, you could if you can find a reason or something good to come from it, it's it's easier to deal with it. But this one with Adrian, it was just, I couldn't. And then, yeah, the neighbours moving in next door and us building this friendship with it. I was like, okay, this is, this is the good that's come from this. And I think it was, for me, it was meant to be. My neighbour, he went through it when we, we finally got the documents and, you know, he was great and he was talking about, you know, what had actually happened on that night because he was able to read those reports. So that was the first time you'd had any insight into what actually happened? Yeah, and he sat there and he read stuff to me until I got to a point where I just, I was in tears and he's like, well, we'll go over it. He said, just give it a bit of time and any questions you've got. But like even geographically like so he had the accident so he explained to me where he'd had the accident and you know he explained that in South Africa if you get pulled over by the police they expect money it's a bribe thing whereas here in Australia the last thing you would ever do is offer a police officer money so he goes he probably had he handed over some money or went oh you know let me go and buy you some dinner or we'll go to KFC they probably would have let him off what but, you know, being in the country for a couple of days, never, you would never have done that here. He would never have known that. And he ended up being arrested. And then obviously it went majorly downhill from there. So when you said, oh, you know, if you pulled over by the police in South Africa, you should offer them money. I'm thinking hundreds of dollars. And then you, you're saying to me, no, like a, a three piece box. Yeah. It blew my mind too. Like he said, you know, if you get pulled over, sometimes you just get pulled over for stupid stuff. Like, mm. but it's them wanting a bribe out of you. You're getting pulled over purely because they want a bribe, whether it's lunch mm. or whether it's a drink or, you know, it's it's money. But like they took him to a medical centre after he'd had this. It was a very minor car accident, which is why the police were called in the first place. Um, and they took him to a medical clinic to take his blood for blood alcohol reading. And my neighbour, Andrew, was able to just say, you know, time-wise, this doesn't work because it doesn't take that long to get to that medical clinic. I don't mm. understand what's happened between this time and this time. Like, he was able to, you know, give me a bit more insight, like particularly when he goes, well, you know, that's a five-minute drive. Why is it taking 20 minutes or, you know, whatever it was? And then what would have happened when he gotten in the cell and, you know, the conditions of the cell and all that kind of stuff. He's just, he's a gem. Like, I honestly... I wouldn't be where I am right now mentally had I not had him to be able to bounce stuff off and answer questions because he can answer them. Because I'm looking at photos here from this South African magazine and it talks about the journalist has obviously somehow got access and he's talking about the smell, the state of the cells. They're pretty, pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah, pretty frightening for, again, a person who's been in the country three days who who is born and bred in the luckiest country in the world. Pretty scary to find yourself in this situation, not understanding what is going on. Particularly when his blood alcohol reading was so high, I don't know why he wasn't in hospital. One report says it was 0.38 and another says it was 0.28. 
But like I spoke to my husband about it and he goes, there is no way known we would have sent them to hospital. You don't want them in a cell at that point. Like, oh, that's right. Your ever. husband's a police, Victoria yeah. police officer. Yeah. Yeah. At what point did you find out that he wasn't alone in the cell? God, that was ages later. They ended up telling us there was he was just a homeless guy that had, you know, meandered into the cell looking for somewhere to sleep. And I'm like, I don't know how you meander into the cell when you've got to go through the actual station. Um, and looking at that cell and the conditions and the smell and the fact that there's no power, why would you want to sleep in there? The blanket's on the floor and they're covered in urine and faecal matter. Like, yuck. Yeah, and the point of a, of a prison cell is that you can't meander in or out of it. Yeah. So, some, you know, it's locked. So someone's locked him in there. And this homeless guy, vagrant, they've called him, he was discharged in the morning. Um, have they ever been able to find him? Did they, did they interview him about what had happened? He's a, a witness, I would think. Yeah. So they told us that they never found him. They never had his name. They didn't know anything. And it wasn't until I got this paperwork a year, 18 months ago, that we can actually see his name, Zachariah. And they did manage to find him and they did interview him. And he just said he saw Adrian standing up and he went to sleep and he didn't see anything else other than that. He just saw Adrian standing. And he had no knowledge of the belt where it had come from? Wasn't his belt? No. So um, I know there was an interview done later on with somebody that was with Adrian before he left, he'd been playing hockey and that's where he'd been drinking. So he left this sports club and was driving home and somebody that was with him went, you know, he was in tracksuit pants. I don't recognise that belt. I've never seen that belt. It does look familiar. So, you know, the question is, did it look familiar because Adrian had seen it or did it look familiar because it was a belt that was sold in South Africa? I misunderstood. I thought he was in tracksuit pants that he'd been given at the jail. But but you're saying he was in tracksuit pants th- through the entire ordeal. Yeah, when he was arrested and everything. Yeah, so he kind of, yeah, he, he did not have, wasn't wearing a belt all evening. No. Apparently he got cold and he asked for his bag out of the car. Uh-huh. And one of the officers went and got his bag and gave it to him. Um, and apparently the belt was in with these other staff. But, I mean, where is the belt? I asked um, Andrew that and he literally just said to me, he goes, oh, one of the coppers probably decided he liked the belt and took it home. About the claim that he told people he was schizophrenic, I'm gathering that there's no evidence of his ever saying anything like that at home here in Australia or ever having a diagnosis like that? No, not that I'm aware. As far as I know, he had no mental health issues. He always seemed pretty happy. When our brother died, like, see, his younger brother, as I said, 11 months younger than he was, Alan had been through some pretty tough stuff and he was there the night Alan ended up committing suicide. Al had actually gone to him and told him he was going to do it. He had the rope in his hand and I just went, you're just drunk, you know, go to bed, go sleep it off. So we know he struggled with that after it happened. But as I said, when he, you know, he was heading over to South Africa, he'd had this whole new prospect ahead of him, this whole life ahead of him. He certainly was never in that, that frame of mind. And I've spoken to, you know, people that knew him, randomly ran into somebody at the Esplanade at St Kilda that knew them um, about 12 months ago. Mm. It was weird. And even chatting to her, she's like, you would just, he just wasn't like that. He was always happy and jovial and looking forward to the future and what was next. So I don't know. So at the very least, we're talking about an incredible amount of negligence, Mm -hmm. both at the health centre, so-called health centre, and by police 
in that they're saying, oh, well, he did say he was suicidal and schizophrenic and we thought it was a joke. Yeah. And then we put him in this hideous cell, freezing cell with a homeless guy who meandered in there. And then when he asked for his bag out of the car, we gave it to him without searching it. Yep. I mean, it's the sort of thing in Australia that would lead to a royal commission. And, you know, never got a phone call. The first thing you expect is, you know, you watch TV and, yeah. you know, you get your phone call. Like the Australian Commission didn't even know. The consulate had no idea he'd even been arrested. Like there's no phone call to his boss. There was no phone call to home. There was no phone call to the commission. Like, yeah, there's just, there was no phone call ever. For him to have just died for no reason, with no answers and no no punishment whatsoever is just, it's a really hard pill to swallow. I really do struggle with it. And the other side of it is he's just no one. Like he was no one to the government. He was no one to, like he's just no one. And that really upsets me. Like, because he's not no one. He was somebody and he had his whole future in front of him. And he was cheated and I was cheated and our family's been cheated. And everybody just goes about living their life. Like nothing's happened. If you would like to speak to someone about the issues we're talking about today, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
look, apart from we've spoken a lot about the negligence here, but we haven't spoken about your suspicions and the suspicions of Adrian's friends at the time that he didn't take his own life. Yeah. What scenario do you do you consider um, that isn't that? I don't know. I, I guess I still look at it and go, was it suicide? Was it manslaughter? Was it murder? The belt had to have come from somewhere. And as I said, he was wearing tracksuit pants. So where the hell did that belt come from? I don't know if, you know, when he's got his sports stuff in his bag in the back of his car, is there a belt in it? Like it was a Saturday, he wasn't at work. It's frustrating because that should be a really simple answer if yep. they'd only done their jobs, you know? Yeah. And then there's this time frame where he was arrested and like every every police officer that's, you know, been interviewed in relation to this says he was injury free. Like even from the car accident, he didn't have any scratches, he didn't have any marks. And then after death, you know, he's got a cut above his eye, he's got, you know, scratches on his face. And my husband said to me, he goes, I hate saying this to you, he goes, because it's not a nice thing. He goes, but you will find that people that commit suicide, once they're in the middle of it, don't want to. They realise and they try and change their mind. He goes, he could have been clawing at his face. He could have, yeah, you know, trying to get himself down. It, look, he was definitely hung with a belt. The way he's done it, I don't know if he was as drunk as he was, if he could have physically done that by himself. I think, so it looks as though he's been hung from a window grate, is that right, with the belt? Yeah, it looks like he's done a, a figure eight and then tied it around his neck. And then you go, that blood alcohol reading of 0.38, how did he physically manage to hang himself? It seems a very extreme reaction to the situation, even though the situation's hideous, but it it was always going to be a a short-term situation. I mean, it was a really minor charge he was looking at. He had to know that. So it seems like a massive overreaction. Then the other thing is, what have they said to him when they've arrested him? Mm. You know, you're going to jail for this. I don't know what they've said to him. Wasn't there some suggestion that he was told that he'd seriously injured somebody else? Yeah, in the car accident. So we were under the impression that he'd been told. So he'd there was a car in front of him. The driver was turning right, so they'd actually brake to make a right-hand turn and aid minor accident had run into the back of the car. And I'm not condoning. He, he, drank, he no, was yeah. drinking and driving. He should never have done it. Um, the accident itself didn't cause any damage to the vehicles. So it wasn't a severe accident. And we were told that, yes, he'd been told that he'd caused severe injury and somebody had said that, you know, he'd killed the person in the car. And I still I still don't even know what we're being told is what's actually been said. Like, it's so mm. hard. But you would hope that reading these documents that the car is minimal, there's minimal damage that people got out of the car. Adrian would have seen them. The police, they're taking reports from both sides of it. And I still question, you know, how much truth is in these, the the documents that we've got, you know, all these coppers have had plenty of time to stand together and have a conversation about what happened. I don't know if he said he was suicidal. I have no idea. Like Adrian saying he was schizophrenic just sounds I don't know, it just doesn't sound right to me. I could get, once you were in the cell saying, you know, I don't want to be here, I want to die. I get that, but at the scene of the car accident, I don't know. The doctor that did his autopsy, it's the same doctor that took his blood the night he was arrested, the same Mm. doctor that they got in to 
medically declare him dead. And we were meant to have representation. His boss was going to go in for the autopsy and be present for that. And we got told her to be on a particular day. And when they rocked up, they went, oh, no, we did it two days earlier. Is he the same bloke who said he, he told him he was suicidal or schizophrenic? Schizophrenic, yeah. S- same bloke. You know, when there's a suspicious death and you've already had a doctor reporting that he was schizophrenic and he'd taken his blood, I don't know why you get the same doctor to declare him dead and then do the autopsy. Yeah, I mean, like, what sort of town is this? I mean, it, like, you know what I mean? Like, what's the population of this area where there's one medical practitioner who is taking blood samples of blokes who've been arrested for drink driving and is also doing the autopsies? Yeah. How does that work? I've got no idea, but I don't think Ramberg's overly small population. I'm like, it's a yeah. capital of Johannesburg. That's shocking. And I, I mean, look, we are talking about 1995, so I can only imagine, I would hope to high heaven that it's not run like that now. And I think they left his body hanging. Like they, you know, finding him at seven o'clock in the morning, I don't think they pulled him down until later in that afternoon. I think they left him up there for, you know, nearly a 24-hour period. And I'm like, that's oh my disgusting to read. We don't even know what day he died on. Because they did not check on him. We don't know if he died on the Saturday or the Sunday. You know, how long was he up there for? What was his blood alcohol reading when he died? That would give us a better indication of when he died and whether or not he was actually physically capable of doing it himself. You know, if it was six o'clock in the morning and, you know, that alcohol's worn off, that's great. You know, he's got more chance of, yes, he's done it himself. But if he's done it straight after he's been locked up, like, and also you would think psychologically it'd be less likely at six o'clock in the morning, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would be hoping that, you know, it's nearly daylight or it is daylight. Yeah. I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, I'll make my phone call. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. What recourse do you have in the South African system? There's nothing. They're literally, we couldn't do anything at the time. I know Adrian's mum and grandfather went to the Australian Commission and tried to, you know, get answers and get representation and wanted something done. And I know in 1995, the trade between Australia and South Africa that was, you know, just starting to ramp up and they they didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to rock the boat. So from Australia's end, there was nothing. We didn't get any assistance. We had to pay to get his body home. We now know from South Africa and all the officers that were working or were involved and the doctor and whatever that was involved were all questioned, but nothing happened. They weren't stepped down during the investigation. They just kept working. They weren't docked any pay. There was, there was just nothing. You've put it into historical context there, which I, I hadn't put two and two together. That's really interesting. So apartheid ended in the early 90s. Prior to that, there were all the sanctions, international sanctions against South Africa, but then all of a sudden those ended and it was a new market and everyone was allowed to trade with South Africa and, you know, countries like Australia, we're always looking for trading partners, especially with the European Union at that time, looking to sort of shut us out. And so, yeah, I guess politically... It was a really difficult time to get assistance from DFAT or from any sort of um, governmental agency 
to look into something scandalous that had happened to an Australian citizen in South Africa because they would have been working around the clock to try and create alliances with South Africa, you know, to try and get trade going. It's amazing what money does, hey? Yeah. So my brother ends up dead and for the sake of money, there's nothing. We have no answers. We have no nothing. And here I am, you know, nearly 30 years later, still trying to work out what the hell happened to my brother. What do you hope to do now? I mean, you're still pursuing this. I know you're still having documents translated. You're still pursuing more documents. You're still, what, what's the end game here for you? You've invested a lot of your life in this. Yeah. You ask my family and stuff too much, but for me, I don't think I'll ever get closure. I don't know if closure is the right word, but I feel like having answers, I was really hoping getting these documents would give me some answers and it's just given me more questions than anything else. I think it's just confused me even more. Like anyone else, I would really love to see the people that were involved in this punished for something. Our sister is just, you know, she's the, my dad's got us out of his biological children left. He's got my sister and I, and mm. you know, Marie was Alan's twin and then losing Adrian. <sighs> she's, she's a broken person. She lives off grid. She doesn't, she hides from her mum and doesn't have anything to do with her mum at all, but she is broken. Like, and you go, you know, you assholes, you didn't just kill him, but you've destroyed my sister. And I think for me personally, trying to get answers just so that I can sleep better. I worked really hard trying to deal with my PTSD um, and a lot of the triggers that I've got, I don't get set off so much, but you know, there are certain things that still set me off. I would love for it to just be an open conversation and not set me off so much. You know, your story reminds me of like a missing person story in a lot of ways, you know, where a family gets this initial sort of rush where everyone's a bit fascinated because a teenager's disappeared or whatever, a person's disappeared and it's all mysterious and doesn't make sense and it's like a a plot. But then six years later, eight years later, ten years later, the family's desperately trying to get help to keep it in people's minds, to keep people looking and helping and no one will run their story. No one, you know. It's like, oh, is there another angle? Uh, you know, have you got anything new? Uh, we can't really run it because, you know. It's dead. Like there's nothing yeah. to report on. Yeah. Yeah. I know we got him home. I know we have mm. his body. But sometimes I feel like, it, I'm like he's not a missing person, but it almost feels like that. When I listen to missing yeah. person cases, I'm asking those same questions. Yeah, I've got his body home, but what happened? Yeah, that's what you, you've reminded me a lot of today. It's like, yeah, this feels like a missing persons conversation in a lot of ways. So many qu- unanswered questions and that it feels like you're suffering from ambiguous loss. You've definitely got the loss and you're right, you know, you've, you've got, you had Adrian's remains returned to you, but it's so ambiguous, like you were saying earlier on. If you knew what happened, like you know with other family members, yep. you can... You process it. Mm. Yeah whatever happened to him happened to him. I just don't know what happened to him. I can deal with, you know, if he's committed suicide, I can deal with that. But uh, there's just so many questions that make you go, did he? If, you know, he it was negligence on the police part, you get that too. I'm still angry about that. Mm. You know, if he's been, a cop has killed him or whoever was in the cell with him has killed him or whatever. 
I can deal with it. I just don't know if that's what it is. And it's the unknowing is really hard. I can, I'm not that I've had a similar situation, but I, I would, I think, be constantly just thinking of scenarios. I wouldn't be able to turn my brain off. Yeah, I was like that for a really long time. I think I'm better now. Um, every now and then something will pop up and I go, huh, and it makes me think of it. And I think the more that I've dug, the more questions, like they haven't been answered, I've ended up with more questions. Look, if anyone's listening that actually knew Adrian and could just even, you know, fill me in some stories and things like that, I'd just love to know more about who he was and because I, I missed it. I missed that opportunity of ever getting to fully know him as an adult, like, and me being an adult as opposed to me being a child and him being a teenager or in his early 20s and whatever. So photos, because that was the other thing is after he died, we were organising funeral stuff and whatever and we went up to his grandparents' house and his mum was there. And um, I just asked for photos. She's like, is there anything you want? And I said, I actually just, I just want photos. I don't have photos of him because we never had him around. So we've got a couple She's like, no, you're not having them. And dad said to her at that point, he goes, we'll go down the street. I'll make copies. I'll bring them straight back. And she goes, no. She walked into his room and gave me a cassette player without a cord and went, here you go. So yeah, if anyone's got photos of Aid and stories of Adrian and Alan and my sister Marie, I'd love to hear them. If by any chance there's anyone listening who who doesn't know, you know, what happened to Adrian and they don't, they're not connecting the dots what school, what what neighbourhood in Melbourne were you guys in? So the um, boys grew up in Bansdale, um, went to Marie. I know Marie was at Nagel College and we lived in, I was born in Omeo and Benambra up in the high country. So we're all from that area. And then Adrian went to Melbourne Uni before he went over to South Africa. And then, I, you know, you, you're searching for people that knew Adrian, you know, just stories about them and we've got this photo he um was best man at a wedding before he went over to South Africa and somebody managed to get me some of the photos and god he was goofy just stuffing around (laughs) in these photos pulling faces and you just and that's who I remember him as and you know when you talk to people he's like you just had these funny he didn't take anything seriously he was always just joking around and just enjoyed life and yeah I'll talk about aid because as I said, I don't want him to be forgotten, but mm. yeah, it is hard when you've got to pick and choose who you can talk to, particularly when the ones that you you could get answers out of, like say for my dad, for example, if, you know, I wanted to ask about their, ch- like, you know, what were the boys like when they were little and and things like that. And he just, he, he just can't. He's old school. He was born and raised on a farm and, you know, emotions aren't, it just doesn't happen like ever. So... Once you've lost somebody, you know, once they're dead, dad just says they're dead, leave them dead. So you don't discuss it. You don't talk about it. So there's certain things that I'd love to ask dad questions about, but you just, you don't. Well, that's a whole other thing too, isn't it? He's obviously really resistant to any conversation, let alone exploration. So that must make it difficult. I can hear your very deep affection for your dad and respect. Yeah. Yeah. And it was him and I for so long, like, Mm. you know, once mum died, it was just literally him and I, like I'm the youngest of a gazillion kids, but you know what they say about mum holding a family together and, you know, all my siblings were adults. So it was dad and I for a really long time and we did it, you know, 
mum died and we dealt with that together and A died and we dealt with that together and raising a teenage girl when you really didn't know how to do anything and especially being a tough farmer, I've turned him into an empathetic and an emotional, well, not overly emotional, but he's definitely, mm. yeah, I love him. He's a good He's a good human being. He always used to say to me when I was a kid, it doesn't matter how sick you feel, get out of bed. It doesn't matter how heartbroken you are, get up and see the sunlight. Like it was always, you need to get up. You can't sit in this place. Like I've had people say to me, oh yeah, you know, I've been suicidal so you can understand it. And I was like, I've actually never felt that. And I'm lucky because I know there's so many people that deal with that all the time. Mm. But I don't know if it's because I did lose two brothers to hanging where, and I made a promise to dad. I said, I will never, ever do this to you. Like losing two sons is is enough. Like, But I've never gotten so low that I've ever even considered it. So, and I think that's dad's mindset. It's like, you know, you need the sunshine, you need the fresh air, you need to be out, you need to, you can't sit and wallow in it. You can't sit in the dark. It's terrible for you. So he's always been good like that. My mum was super affectionate, super loving. And I know I definitely get that. So, and I think because mum was like that and then when we lost her and I I crave that so desperately, I kind of forced dad to be like that too. He's had to, <laughs> he's had to change. He really has. So, you know, we end a phone call now and he's like, I love you. Whereas I think he'd gone, you know, 50 odd years without his mother ever telling him that she loved him. And yeah. every phone call now he's like, I love you. And I'm like, I love you too. So, yeah, I guess I'm I'm a good mix of the two of them. I try and be as positive as I can. Like I always look at, I guess in loss, it shows you just how much you actually have. You can't have that that light without the dark. So I try not to take anything for granted. Thank you to our guest today, Courtney Pendergast. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.